0: Good morning, and welcome to Big Woods Bible Church. It is a great privilege to be here with you this morning, filling in for Pastor Tim. Uh, I love that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In fact, I just, I love where we see in Scripture people who come in contact with this God who is holy, 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 because it's always the same reaction as Isaiah Isaiah sees God on his throne, and the temple is filled with his glory, and he's immediately on his face. He says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We see John in in Revelation, he he falls on his face as if he's dead. We see Moses who, who wants to see the full glory of God. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, to see me is to die. He says, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and pass by and you, you'll literally see just my backside because to see me is to, to die. In fact, the, the verse in Hebrews directly before where we're going to pick up today. We're in Hebrews 13, one through six. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there. The last verse of verse 12 says that our God is an all-consuming fire. Thank you, worship team, Matt, for leading us and the rest of you. And, and thank you, Bryce, for handling the second service here for the PowerPoint. And um, John in the sound room. And, and Sue Walmer, I, I, you know, we sometimes forget that there's all these working parts behind the scenes, right? And, uh, you know, today my message is a, a bit about body life. And, and you get that picture of 1 Corinthians 12. And, and, you know, these people who, you know, are behind the scenes, Paul says that they're no less dispensable than anyone else, right? In fact, they're indispensable, the Bible says. And so we appreciate uh, you using your gifts to glorify God. And so if you do have your Bibles, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, we'll get there in a moment. We're going to be continuing on in the series called Ekklesia, the purpose and power of the church. Recall Ekklesia is the Greek word for church. It, It means group or assembly. Uh, Literally, it means called out for a purpose by God's divine act of mercy and grace in pouring out his righteous wrath on his blameless son, Jesus Christ, he has elected for himself his church. If you sit here under my voice this morning, having recognized your own sinfulness and profess faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, then you are saved. You are part of the church. You are the ecclesia. You are called out for a purpose. And what is the purpose for which we're called? To quote Pastor Tim in his opening message of this series, Tim says, First and foremost, the church has been designed by God to give glory to God and to extend the gospel to the world. You've heard it said that as Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. As Christians, we're not, not of the world. We're, we're called out of the world in the sense that we are to live lives that are holy. We just sang about that. We're to live lives that are set apart from the rest of the world. We're not called to live the way the rest of the world lives. But, but, simultaneously, we're sent into the world on mission. Those set apart, we're sent into we're sent into the world so that our lives can reflect Christ to those so, who so desperately need him. More specifically, to this local body here at Big Woods, we're sent into the world to build relationships so that God is glorified and lives, family, families, in the community are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should sound familiar to you. And so with that introduction, let's go to our text this morning, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the ESV. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as those, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we we indeed do just praise you for who you are, God. You are indeed holy, holy, holy. And God, we know that you created man to be in your own image, and and everything that you created was very good, the Bible said. But in Genesis chapter 3, we fell. We failed on our commitment, God. We sinned, Lord. And, And because you are a holy God, you have to judge sin. You can't let sin go unpunished. The Bible says that you can't even look on sin. But God, in your great mercy and love for us, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, God, you redeemed us, you made a way back to you by sending your perfect son to live a a life that we couldn't live, a perfect life in our place and to die a death that was ours to die. On that cross, God, you, you poured out your wrath on your holy and blameless son. And God, because of that propitiation, Lord, we are declared righteous before you, a holy God. Praise you this morning for that God. Let that be the message that these people hear this morning. God, you are indeed the only gospel that saves. Jesus is the only gospel that saves. God I pray that at this very last moment you would take anything out of this message that's that 's not of you, Lord. I, I pray that you would get the glory. For this time and not myself. Would your Holy Spirit work now in the hearts, God, do a work that I can't do in your son's holy name. Amen. And so over the last few weeks, excluding Father's Day last week, Pastor Tim has been focusing on the promises of Jesus re- regarding the local church. And each week we've delved into a different I will statement. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we've been We've been hitting these I will statements directly from the word of God spoken by Jesus. In week one, it was Matthew sixteen eighteen, where he says, I will build my church. The promise that the church is built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In week two, uh, Tim was in John fourteen eighteen. He says, I will come to you. The promise that we will not be left as orphans, but that, that God will send the person of the Holy Spirit to us. In week 3, it was Matthew 4.19, I will make you fishers of men. The promise that God will equip us to fulfill the great commission. And two weeks ago was Luke 21.15, I will give you words of wisdom. And the promise was the big light bulb, as Tim called it, that tough times bring opportunities to be the shining testimony of God's good promises. This morning, our focus will be on God's promise to us in Hebrews verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, we see this same or very similar promise in several places throughout Scripture, but we see it best perhaps in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6, and then repeated again in Deuteronomy verse 8. The Lord's promise spoken by Moses to Joshua and to all of Israel, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We see it again in the commissioning of Joshua just a few pages over, only slightly different this time. Joshua 1.15 says that no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be assured of this. That this faith promise that stood the test of time throughout the Old Testament and is now brought to new life in the New Testament by the writer of Hebrews is just as relevant for you and I today because the God who promised it is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. See the weightiness of this particular I will statement. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you know the implications that that has? Did it jump off the page at you when we read verse 5? If we as a faith family really buy into this verse, if we as a church truly believe it, if this body really trusts that God will indeed be faithful in this promise I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, then the result will be what we read in verse 6 of our text What do we have to fear? What can man do to me? Kill me? Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and then cast your soul into hell for all of eternity. What have we to fear? And one of the messages leading up to this, Pastor Tim posed three questions, and they're challenging questions, and I want to revisit them this morning. He said, if Bigwood's Bible Church no longer existed, would Lockhaven notice? Would anyone miss us? Would anyone be affected if Bigwood's Bible Church weren't here? And brothers and sisters, I can tell you that if everyone in this faith family, myself included, staked their very lives on this verse, the answers to all three of those questions would be a resounding yes, yes, yes. Be encouraged this morning that the sovereign God of the universe, who holds the whole world in the palm of his hand, who works out all things for our good, has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. I have three points to share with you this morning, and, and we'll get to those as we work through our text, but they can be summed up by this one overarching truth i I apologize, it's not on your sermon notes, but if you want to jot it down, I'll read it slowly and I'll, I'll do it a couple of times. Summing up my three points with this one overarching truth here it is The promise of God to never leave us nor forsake us. The promise of God to never leave us nor forsake us empowers us as a church to love unconditionally battle sin transparently and to give sacrificially. Here we go again. The promise of God to never leave us nor forsake us empowers us as a church body to love unconditionally, battle sin transparently, and to give sacrificially. And now that we understand the promise that our focus is on this morning, let's go back to our text and see how it applies biblical fellowship, this thing that we call church. Let's see how it applies to fellowship. Let's see how it applies to our purity. Let's see how it applies to our contentment as it pertains to Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. The writer of Hebrews has spent the first 12 chapters of the book presenting Christ as greater. You folks that just came through the, the small group series know that well. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Joshua. Christ is greater than the sacrificial system. He is our rest. He is our mediator. He is our great high priest. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But, but, by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To which we now come to the last chapter in Hebrews 13 where we read. And so here's, Here's where the writer picks up. In light of all of that, in light of the fact that Jesus is greater, in light of all of that, we get some exhortations here. This is how, as Christians, we should live. Chapter 13, verse 1, the first exhortation we get from the writer Hebrews is to let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. True biblical fellowship is defined by love. Simply put, love one another. If we're going to be true in our fellowship of faith here, then we must love each other. We see that again in John chapter 13, verse 34. It says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Reading on in 35, By, all this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As Christians, we're called to exist in the context of relationship. First and foremost, we're to have a relationship vertically with Almighty God that's provided by the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ on us. But then in light of that vertical relationship with with Christ, we have this horizontal fellowship with other believers. The way that we worship God has much to do with how we treat other people. I'll say that again, the way that we worship God has much to do with how we treat other believers. You can't have a vertical relationship without a horizontal one. And and I'm not somehow saying that we can gain salvation by loving other believers. Uh, Loving other believers doesn't gain us salvation, it reveals it. Loving other believers doesn't gain us salvation. It reveals if our salvation is really true. It's the litmus test for it. We see that. You ever ask the question, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know if I'm really saved? 1 John 3.14 addresses that pretty well. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Pretty plain and simple. Whoever does not love abides in death. We love the brothers, we're saved. Whoever doesn't love the brothers abides in death. Not my words, Bible. And so I ask you this morning to to survey your hearts. Do you love other Christians? Let me take a look around. Are some of your closest friends in this room? Are your closest friends even Christians? Not that we can't have friends that are Non believers, that's a great mission field. But are your closest friends Christians, or do you find yourself as one of those people who compartmentalizes their friends? You know, one set of friends here in church on Sunday and a different set of friends Monday through Saturday. And you say, But some of the people in this church just aren't like me, we don't share the same interests. How can I possibly get along with them? It's just like we're talking to them. To which I say, That's the great part about the body of Christ. We can all come from different backgrounds. We can all come from different jobs. We can all have different socioeconomic statuses and and ethnicities and and totally different walks of life. The only thing that we may have in common with the believer next to us is Christ, and that's enough. Christ died for his church. The church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. How much more of a connection do we need? We know our salvation is true because we unconditionally love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In contrast to this verse, we, we read in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not that they all are not of us. And so that's a little wordy, so let me elaborate. Withdrawing from the fellowship of believers tends to call into question the very sincerity of your original commitment to that group. You don't just quit the things you love to do. In fact, most people try to do them more. Did you know that most professional athletes are are guarded against playing pickup games in the offseason? There's actually clauses in their contract that prevent them from from just going out on a basketball court, an NBA player on a, a playground and playing a game of basketball in the offseason, an NFL player going and and playing a game of tackle football. There's clauses in their contract. And you understand why. These teams want to protect their lucrative assets, their star players. They don't want them to get hurt. But along came probably the best basketball player ever. Before there was LeBron, before there was Steph Curry, there was a man by the name of Michael Jordan. And he said, look, I love to play basketball too much. He said, I just can't go an entire off-season and not play a pickup game. Basketball is part of who I am. It's part of me. And so it was that Michael Jordan had what was called a for the love of the game clause put into his contract that that afforded him the right to play basketball whenever he chose to do so. I wonder how many of us as Christians have written on our hearts a for the love of the Christian assembly clause that not only affords us the right to meet on on Sunday mornings like this, but but in Sunday school and home groups and Friday morning prayer meetings and women's ministries, et cetera. Just meeting with a fellow believer over a cup of coffee... For the love of the Christian Assembly Clause. Because fellowship with other believers is just something we do. It's just part of us. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill who said, if you want to know how popular your church is, go on Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular your pastor is, go on Sunday evening. If you want to know how popular God is, go to the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Now, we don't have some of those things at those particular times, but we got those things at other particular times. Looking back at our text, it says, let brotherly love continue. I'm back in Hebrews 1. Let brotherly love continue. How? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We see here in verse 2 that not only are we to love other Christians, but we are to love on and show hospitality to strangers as well. People we don't even know. This is, a, this is one is so key for us as a faith family for obvious reasons. If we're going to be a fellowship of believers who are obedient to the word of God, then we must be identified by the manner in which we love on and show hospitality to those around us. Regardless of how unlovable they are and regardless of their ability to reciprocate your love. Get that, right? Regardless of how unlovable they are, some of us can be pretty unlovable at times, and regardless of their ability to reciprocate that love, some of the people we're going to come in contact with in this new building will be most undeserving. To which I reply, so what? So were we. So were we. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more undeserving can you be? To quote Chip Ingram on this kind of love, Chip Ingram says, love is giving the other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least, because that's what God did for us. Love is giving the other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least, because that's what God did for us. We love because he first loved us. That's the kind of love we're dealing with here in this text. We aren't dealing with that warm, fuzzy, emotional kind of love. We're dealing with the sacrificial kind. The kind that only the Holy Spirit can empower you and provide you with. But be sure of one thing. Be sure of this. We will show people God by the way that we treat them. We will show people God by the way that we treat them. Again, I go back to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I've already read it, but I want to reference the second verse. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. The second part of that verse should be one of those gut-check, heart-check type verses. Do people see Christ in me, when they see the way that I interact and love on others? Is God really being glorified in my hospitality to strangers? Did it ever occur to you that, that when people come to a new church, the first time they're there, sometimes we often fret so much about the worship music. Did they enjoy it? Did they, was the sermon good enough? Were the children's ministries, did they meet their needs? Did it ever occur to you that maybe none of that is as important as what we are saying with our very lives. It's body life. Seeing a new believer and saying, hey, how are you? What's your name? Nice to have you. Sitting with them, perhaps. Small, simple things. Inviting them to lunch. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The latter part of that verse is is not meant to to serve as an ultimate motivation for our hospitality. Yes, in Scripture we, we sometimes see where people have entertained angels and we're unaware of it. But that's not the ultimate motivation of our hospitality. I believe that part's in there to reveal that we may never know just how far the depths of our hospitality has reached for the kingdom of God. Know this, the ramifications of the manner in which we extend love and hospitality to strangers holds weight into eternity. The manner in which we extend love and hospitality to strangers holds weight into eternity. We see that in Matthew, right? The sheep and the goats. Jesus says, and he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed, my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Perfect for our text. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Of course, we know the latter part of that text, which culminates with this verse and these two shall go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life the manner in which we extend love and hospitality to strangers holds weight into eternity and so let brotherly love continue don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers verse 3 remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. As believers, we should be able to identify with the suffering of others because we should also suffer physical pain and hardship alongside of them. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26 speak perfectly to that. There should be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, then all rejoice together. Just think about the object lesson here. If one part rejoices, then the whole body rejoices. But if one part of the body is suffering, then think about that. Your entire body feels bad. And if you don't believe that, go home and just, just take the tip of one of your fingers and smash it with a hammer. I mean, your whole body throbs. What a great object lesson finger's so small. In the same way, when a believer is in need, we should all feel that need. It's called empathy. But what we're seeing here is empathy in action. Galatians 6, 2, Aaron referenced it in Sunday school. Bear ye one another's burdens. Bear ye one another's burdens. When's the last time you bore the burdens of a fellow brother or sister in this body? When one member has a need, the rest of us are in need. How can I serve you? How can I specifically pray for you? Hey, can we grab a cup of coffee and I'll just listen and you talk and you cry? How can I meet you at your point of need and just love on you? We are all baptized by one spirit. So as to form one body. We are the body of Christ. Perhaps there's no better example of this than the very beginning of the church that we see in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food in glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those being saved. I'll bet he did. You love on people like that. And so heart check time. Is Big Woods Bible Church marked with the kind of fellowship that we see here? Is Big Woods Bible Church marked with the kind of hospitality that we see here? Is, is Bigwood's Bible church, ma- church marked with the kind of empathy that says, I can see you're hurting, therefore I'm hurting too? Because I can tell you that the community is watching us. Oh, that we would, we would do fellowship and extend hospitality and experience true empathy for the glory of God in this community, for the spread of his great name, not our own. Make note of this. We will never be perfect, this side of glory, at any of these things. We will never be perfect. Body life can get really ugly when you're working that closely with one another and you're loving on each other that closely. You're going to offend some people. We will not be perfect in this. But when our efforts fail and when someone lets someone else down, it's not time to go and gossip. It's not time to leave the church it's time then that we lean into this God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Point number one in my sermon is to see the promise of God as it pertains to our fellowship, hospitality, and empathy. I promise the other two go much more quickly. Back to our text, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. In verse 4, we move now from the exhortations concerning body life to an exhortation concerning purity. But have we really? I mean, what good is the fellowship we share if it isn't able to come alongside of another believer in his battle or her battle with sin? And we see that in Hebrews 10, verses 23 and 25. It says, let us hold on swervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some have been in the habit of doing. But all the more as you see the day approaching. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The theme of these three verses is very clear. We should not give up hope, but rather we should spur one another on. We should encourage one another. We shouldn't give up meeting together. That just doesn't mean Sunday mornings. There needs to be accountability partners. There needs to be coffee. There needs to be people held accountable. The New Testament's full of these one another statements. If you just go to Romans 12, you'll see a lot of them. Love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, pray for one another, bear ye one another's burdens, live in humility with one another, offer hospitality to one another, confess your sins to one another, spur one another on. You can't one another yourself. Nowhere in Scripture do we see someone make a profession of faith, be baptized, and then sent out to do life on their own. They're immediately placed into a body of believers. Unfortunately, many churches fail up to live this this kind of body life. And and you know what I think the biggest obstacle is to this kind of body life, the kind of body life that glorifies God? I think it's our pride. And, And I don't want to preach a separate sermon here, but Sometimes Sunday mornings are a really weird time. From the time we get up and the hustle and bustle of the house till we rush through the door of the sanctuary, at some point we tend to put on this mask that says, I've got it all together. I've got it. I'm okay. I don't need to let anyone else in. We hide the fact that our, behind our smiles is a brokenness and perhaps even unconfessed sin in our lives. Our response to the question, how are you, is always good. How are you? But we aren't really good. In fact, we're downright struggling. Marriages are struggling. Trapped in sexual purity-type sins. We're prideful and we're angry. and Take it out on our children. And the Holy Spirit cries out in us, tell someone, let someone in but our prideful flesh wars against our spirit and all too often we put on that mask and our flesh wins and we pretend that everything's okay. Love that casting crown song called stained glass masquerade. I'm just going to read the first verse to you because it's very applicable. Is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls or am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everybody seems so strong. I know I soon, I'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. And so with a painted grin, I'll play the part again so everyone will see me the way that I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles to hide our pain. But if the invitation's open to every heart that has been broken, maybe then we'll close the curtain on a stained glass masquerade. I want to be very transparent with you. I, You know, when I preach this, I, I preach to myself just now because I, you know, I've you struggled with this kind of thing my entire life, letting other people in. I think sometimes as men we we hide behind the fact that it's tough to talk to other men, but... It's tough to confess your sins to other men sometimes. Praise God for accountability partners in my life in recent years. Because you know what my attitude generally is? It might be the same as, as yours. My attitude is this, when I'm not with my accountability partner. It's, it's that I'll just try harder next time. I'll, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and tomorrow's going to be a better day for me. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. If that's your mentality, I'm here to tell you that tomorrow's going to overcome you as well. Your marriage is going to be crumbling tomorrow as well. The pornography's going to come back tomorrow as well. The pride's going to come back tomorrow as well. The anger will be back tomorrow. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone he can devour. If you think that In and of yourselves, you can wage the war of sin alone and win. You are gravely mistaken. That's what the devil wants you to believe. That's his best game. He wants you to live in secrecy. He doesn't want you to confess your sins to to a dear brother or sister that will pray for you and hold you accountable. Someone who will ask you the hard questions and, and live life alongside of you. I'm here to tell you this morning, you're not alone. You're not alone. You know, they say the church is full of hypocrites. It is. Full of liars and angry people and people who lust, people whose marriages are crumbling. We're sinners in the church, but we're repentant sinners. And you're not alone. You know, the beauty of this, I love the way Matt Chandler puts it. The beauty of the church is that they will help you kill your lion because they're trying to kill their own. We're all dragging around our own lions, trying to put them to death. And if you're not, then sin has won you over. Beauty of the church. If we're going to impact this community for Christ, we need to stop dancing the stained glass masquerade. It's time that we take off our masks and be transparent with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. This isn't a social club. The matters that we deal with here mean life or death for all of eternity. We need to trust that in our confession of sin, we need to trust that in our confession of sin, there stands a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And despite our shortcomings, there's the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Point number two trust the promise of God in our purity. Lastly and quickly, I come to verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And So we finally pick up our our verse that we focus on. and, And to speak to that, I just want to quote Charles Spurgeon in regards to resources and wealth. Be thou bold to believe, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In this promise, God gives to his people everything. I will never leave thee. There is no attribute of God that can cease to be engaged for us. Is he mighty? He will show himself strong on our behalf of them who trust him. Is he love? Then with loving kindness, he will have mercy upon us. Whatever attributes may compose the character of deity, every one of them to its fullest extent shall be engaged on our side. To put everything into one, there is nothing that you can want. There is nothing that you can ask for. There is nothing that you can need in time or in eternity. There is nothing living, nothing dying. There is nothing in this world, nothing in the next world. There is nothing now, nothing at the resurrection morning, nothing in heaven, which is not contained in this text. I will never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. You know, here's what I think Spurgeon is saying. And I think it, It goes back to that picture of the God who is holy, 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 who's an all-consuming fire, who we can't even look at and we're on our faces. Holds the whole world in the palm of his hand and nothing happens to us here on this earth that doesn't pass by his sovereign hand first. That should be a very comforting fact to you. That should free you up to give sacrificially Friends, if the God of the universe says that he will never leave us and that he will never forsake us, what else can we possibly ask for? The promise to God to never leave us to never forsake us. What is better than that? You know, in our discussion so far of the church, at least today, we've really not mentioned anything of the church being a building. Everything has been... We are the church. And while there are a number of functions that should be present within a church, things like those present in Acts chapter 2, the proclamation of the world, the word, partaking of the Lord's Supper, fellowship and prayer, those things are critical to what a church is. What is not critical is a building. The building is a tool. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that to gain some kind of shock value, knowing that in a few short weeks, Lord willing, we'll be moving to a new building. But the old cliche remains, we don't go to church, we are the church. Hear me out, if, if we are to have a smooth transition to the new building, we must continue to value biblical fellowship over church building ownership. I'll say that again, if we are to have a smooth transition to this new building and meet the needs of our community, then we must continue to value biblical fellowship over church building ownership. We must must be the church to these people. Praise God for our new building and the toll that it will prove to be for the spread of the gospel in Haven and Lord willing the world, but it's It's not the church. We are the church. The order of our service, the the style of our music. Do we stand up to sing? Do we sit down to sing? Do we have pews or do we have chairs? Do we have carpet? If so, what color? These trivial things that tend to drive a wedge between fellow believers really have nothing to do with the church. We must remember that moving forward in the weeks to come. Many of those kind of decisions need to be made. Yes, they do. Some of them have been made. Some of them will be made soon. But regardless, none of them define us as the church. Brothers and sisters, this faith family is not and will not be defined by a building nor religious rituals. We are defined by a bloodstained cross and we love people. We love God and we love people. Defined by a bloodstained cross and shared life together. And I pray that, God forbid, if we move into our new building and the following week God decides to burn it down, there we would be, Big Woods Bible Church, on that lawn where a building once stood with an attitude that we've only lost that which moths will eat and rust will destroy. We have not lost fellowship with a holy God nor his saints. Without a building, with or without a building, the power of the church remains. And the purpose of the church remains. Promise number three, the promise of God in our contentment. The promise of God in our contentment. And so as we come to a close, I, I wanna share with you a quote from David Platt. I believe it's on the, the screen. Then we'll pray. Platt says, when we love one another as family in the church we will glorify God as our father in the world. When we love one another as family in the church, we will glorify God as our father in the world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time, God. I I praise you for this faith family who in, in so many ways just encourages me and, on a daily basis a weekly basis i i love the men that surround me in my life and my accountability partners god i pray that for each one here that they would have one or two that they can they can confess sins to and they can find true freedom at the foot of your blood-stained cross lord god i pray for this body as we continue to make decisions about moving and, and the whole construction process god i we just entrust that to you. God, I pray that not a dime is spent apart from your sovereign will at that building, Lord. And ultimately, that that building is really just a tool to, for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of your great name in the Lock Haven area. Oh, God, we entrust that to you now. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Lord, I pray that you would go before us this week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just reign in us for our edification and for your glorification. We love you in your son's holy name. Amen.